for Samuel chapter 14 tonight. For Samuel chapter 14. It's been a couple of weeks, but we are looking at the life of King Saul on these Sunday nights. For Samuel 14. I'll read just a couple of verses and then I'll read other verses throughout the message tonight. First Samuel chapter 14 and verse number 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uppermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migran. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. You don't have to know much about um, English history to know the name of Henry VIII. Arguably, arguably the most famous English monarch of all. And Henry VIII is mostly known for having six wives. I am for divorcing them or even worse when they could not produce a male heir for him. Somebody put the fate of his six wives into a little verse that simply says, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. I learned that many years ago in school. His first wife was Catherine of Argon. Catherine was the daughter of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabel of Spain, who financed Christopher Columbus's exploits. And Catherine was married off to King Henry's older brother, Arthur. And Arthur died the year after they were married, and so Catherine was married to his younger brother, the future King Henry the eighth. He was 17 and she was 23. And it was a good enough marriage that produced six children. However, only one of those six children lived beyond infancy, and that was Mary Tudor. Henry VIII became frustrated that his wife could not produce a male heir, and soon his impatience eclipsed his love for Catherine. And so he went to the Pope to ask for an annulment based on the grounds that his marriage was actually unlawful because she had been married previously to his older brother, even though the brother was now dead. You see, England was a Catholic country, and the Pope actually had more power than the king. And the Pope didn't see it the king's way, and so he and King Henry decided he would just be like most Baptists do, and he would just start his own church. So he broke from the Catholic Church and he started the Church of England. He named himself as the supreme head of the Church of England, thereby giving him permission to annul his own marriage. So with his new church, he was able to divorce Catherine and marry the next lady who was already waiting at the altar, and that was Anne Boleyn. Henry and Anne actually married in secret before the first marriage was even officially annulled. And the week after Catherine was banished to a far-off castle and forbidden to see her only surviving child, King Henry and Anne were wed and she became the new queen. 
They would have one child, Elizabeth, but then there would be two pregnancies that would end in a miscarriage and a stillborn baby boy. King Henry gave her three years, and when she proved no better at providing him a male heir than Catherine, then he consulted with a close advisor, Thomas Cromwell, as to what we should do about this situation. It was Cromwell's advice. They built up a adultery case against Anne Boleyn, and they charged her and put her in prison in the Tower of London, and they charged her with adultery and treason, and just for good measure, one count of incest. Allegedly, one of the guys she had dallied around with was her own brother. And in reality, her only crime was that she couldn't produce a male heir. And so on May 19, 1536, Anne Boleyn was beheaded. That made room for the third wife. King Henry didn't grieve long for Anne, whom he had just beheaded. In fact, one day, was enough for grieving. He became engaged to Jane Seymour the very day after. Jane Seymour was described as docile and, and uh, devout and virtuous, but 11 days after Anne was dead, Henry and Jane were wed. And history also names Jane Seymour as his favorite wife. That may be because she actually gave him a male heir, a boy named Edward. And at long last, Henry VIII had a male heir to the throne. And we wonder how long, how long Jane would have actually lasted had she not been able to have a son. But as fate would have it, she wouldn't live long anyway because she had great complications giving birth to Edward and two weeks later she died after giving birth. The fourth wife would be Anne of Cleves. Henry VIII no longer had to worry about having a son, but he had a new worry on his mind, and that was war with France. You see, France was Catholic country. And Henry was afraid that the Pope would retaliate against him for breaking England from Catholicism and that, that maybe he would use France to wage war against him. And Thomas Cromwell, his advisor, said, you really need to make a military alliance and don't take this alone. And back in that day, one of the best ways to make an alliance was through marriage. So Henry said, I need to get me a girl from the very powerful Protestant country of Germany. I need to marry a German girl, and it would be a great political alliance. Anne of Cleves, she came from a very prominent and a very powerful family. And Mary and her would make for a very strong political coalition between England and Germany. Now, the only problem was that Henry and Anne had actually never met. They didn't have Facebook and, and FaceTime, and they'd actually never seen each other. You don't want to really go into a Mary's sight unseen. And so they hired a court painter who went to Germany and painted a portrait of Anne and brought it back to Henry. And Henry liked the picture well enough and said, that's good, we will get married. And when Anne of Cleves came in person, he decided he actually liked the picture better than he did the person. <laughs> they, they went through with the marriage for political reasons. They never consummated the marriage. And when the threat of war with France fizzled out, then the marriage fizzled out as well. And Anne didn't protest, which was probably a good idea for her. 
Uh, so Henry gave her a couple of houses out in the country and they stayed in touch and he was ready to move on to wife number five, Catherine Howard. And Catherine was probably still a teenager when Henry married her and history says that she had been abused in her teen years. She was most likely a troubled girl. Uh, she had had an affair before her marriage and may have even continued the affair after her marriage. And there's a great age difference between King Henry and Catherine Howard. And when King Henry found out about her past, that was his ticket to him. And so two years after they were married, she was taken to the Tower of London and she was beheaded just like Anne Boleyn was. And so now we come to wife number six, Catherine Catherine had been twice widowed and was looking forward to marrying her first love, a man named Thomas Seymour. But King Henry decided that he would like to have her first. And uh, Catherine decided it's Thomas Seymour. And that turns out to be a miserable marriage because it turns out he liked, she liked to chase women. So one year in, Catherine gives birth to a daughter, catches a fever and dies within a week. Now that's a whole lot of history. You're wondering what in the world does this have to do with 1 Samuel chapter 14. And I wanted to tell you the story of King Henry VIII and his story is always told through the lives of his six wives. The Historical Writers Association several years ago surveyed 60 authors, 60 biographers of English history and they asked all 60 who was England's worst monarch. King Henry VIII won hands down. He has constantly taken England to war with Scotland and with France. And when he broke from the Catholic Church, he reinvented himself as a Protestant. He raided all of the monasteries in England and took all of their treasury and transferred it into his own personal coffers. And then he went on a purge and he started executing and cutting heads off of anybody that disagreed with him. In fact, even Thomas Cromwell, his his trusted counselor didn't escape. You see, Thomas Cromwell was the guy that arranged the marriage with Anne of Cleves, who he had never seen. And when that marriage didn't work out, he didn't cut Anne's head off, but he did cut Thomas's head off. Old Thomas didn't escape. It's estimated that hundreds, if not thousands of people were executed during the reign of King Henry VIII. He became paranoid. And with absolute power, it made him a very dangerous man. And when King Henry VIII died, his only son, Edward VI, would become the king. But Edward was only nine years old. And Edward would die at the age of 15. And coming from the family that I have just described, having the kind of father that I have just described, what are the chances that Edward would be anything but a scoundrel? He had vice regents who would run things until he came of age, but as a young man, he would begin to reveal the kind of king that he would have become had he lived a longer life. And what are the chances that he would be just like his father? Like father, like son. But it was not to be so. He was raised by a very Protestant mother and he soon became England's first true Protestant king. Now we're not Protestants. We, we don't claim the Reformation as a 
true revival, but it did break Catholics' hold over England. And it did allow for the translation of our English Bible. So in his short six years as king, King Edward, through vice regents, enacted a number of measures that promoted Protestantism in England. He outlawed the mass. He outlawed clerical celibacy. He ordered that all of the services be conducted in English and not Latin so people could understand what was being said. He oversaw the first publication of the Book of Common Prayer. And again, these are not Baptist things, but it's not the bloody reign of his father either. He's not just having heads chopped off. And from all indications from his very short life, Edward was as religious as his father was irreligious. We only have a few years as an example, the lost king of England or the boy king of Israel, but it looked like that Edward would not follow in his father's footsteps and that the contrast between father and son could not be any more obvious than between King Henry and King Edward. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, we have another king and son contrasted side by side. And the contrast could not be more obvious. We've already seen glimpses of the character of Saul in the previous chapters, and it does not look good. But Jonathan is of a different spirit. He is of a different makeup. And Jonathan is everything that his father was not. And all of his successes only highlight all of his father's failure. You stand them side by side, and you wonder, how can they even be related? a contrast. The stories of 1 Samuel 13 and 14 actually run together as one episode. After an initial victory in chapter 11 with the Ammonites, Saul has enjoyed a good start as king. But things quickly turn sour in chapter 13 when Jonathan decides to attack a Philistine garrison and essentially all that he does is he wakes a sleeping bear. The Philistines respond by amassing a mighty military buildup in order or, or in preparation to squash the Israelites. Saul has very quickly sent out an emergency call for volunteers, but the fact that, that we're facing such a massive force, the response was underwhelming to say the least. And those who did respond, some of them began to desert before the first shot was even fired. In fact, whereas Saul had rallied 300,000 to stand down against the Ammonites, this time he is reduced to 600 men. We saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 13 that Saul sent word to Samuel seeking spiritual guidance, and then he got impatience. He decided to make offerings on his own without Samuel or without a priest, and that is seen as an act of obedience. And Samuel tells him that God has rejected you, and your dynasty will not last here. Though you will remain as king for another 38 years, your dynasty will die with you and none of your sons will sit on the throne. So we come to chapter 14 and we pick up the story now. Samuel has left Saul and Gilgal without giving him any guidance from the Lord. Saul's on his own. The direness of the situation is emphasized that he has 600 men at his command. Giving the insurmountable odds, the deck is stacked against him. 
Saul has his men stationed at Gebel. The Philistines have amassed at, amassed at Michmash. But it's not a standoff because when you read the Philistines are basically going out on raiding parties to harass the Israelites and steal and plunder and, and, and just whatever they wanted to do and steal and, and just wreak all kinds of havoc. And the Israelites, there's nothing that they could do. So the Philistines pretty much have free reign to just cause as much destruction as they please. And to make a bad situation even worse, the Philistines had confiscated weapons from the Israelites so that no man in the army of Israel had an iron sword or spear except Saul and Jonathan. The Philistines were already in the iron age. They had the technology to make iron weapons, but the Philistines had somehow forbidden the Israelites to have blacksmiths in their land and, and, and to add injury to insult. The Israelites actually had to go to their Philistine neighbors to have their farming implements sharpened. They, they didn't have the ability to do that. And of course, this is a decisive edge to the Philistines. And this is, the con this is the setting for the contrast between father and son. And what you find out is that Saul is indecisive and Jonathan is decisive. And Saul is fearful and Jonathan is brave. And Saul is rash and Jonathan is measured and he is reasonable. And we stand them next to each other and you cannot miss it. You either cultivate the character of Jonathan or you have the character of Saul. I don't have time to read all of chapter 14 tonight. You're going to have to go home and you're going to have to read it. But in the battle that takes place in chapter 14, there are three contrasts between Saul and Jonathan, like father, unlike son. The first is that there is a contrast between courage and cowardice. Look, if you would, in chapter 14, we read the first two verses. Look at verse number four. Or verse number, verse number three. Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh wearing an ephod. And the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over into the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bears armor, Come and let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. The nation is at war with a powerful enemy. They are greatly outnumbered. They are miserably, miserably ill-equipped. And all that can be said about Saul is in verse number two where it says that he sat under a pomegranate tree which is an migron. He's out of the sun and he's safely out of the reach of the Philistines. He had taken charge in the situation against the Ammonites but maybe because he was so emboldened to have 300,000 men standing behind him. But now with his back against the wall and a dwindling army, he's not too keen to go into battle right now. He's going to lead from behind. I'm going to sit this one out because I, I don't want to die. I don't know what to do. It is a miserable show of leadership is what it is. But then, but then there is Jonathan. Jonathan's tired of sitting. 
He, he's, he's wanting to take some action. But he can't override his father. He's, he's not the king. He's not the general of the army. And Saul doesn't want to cause trouble with the Philistines. Jonathan doesn't want Israel to be bothered by the Philistines. So Jonathan goes to his armor bearer and says, hey, hey, why don't you and I, why don't we tonight, why don't we sneak out of camp and see if we can find some Philistines to kill? And the armor bearer says, man, that's a great idea. Let's, let, let, let's do that. Let's, let's sneak out. Let's see if we can find a Philistine camp. And the text makes a point in verse number four to tell you that the garrison of the Philistines had camped out in a high place and there were sharp rocks and you had to climb over those rocks to reach them. It's trying to tell you that it's a difficult place. So how are these two men going to sneak into this camp, kill some Philistines, and then escape? Now, again, you've got to read the passage. I don't have time to read it all, all right? But Jonathan comes up with a daring plan, albeit not a very smart plan. Here's what he tells his armor bearer. He says, listen, here's what we're going to do. He says, we're going to get real close to them. We'll sneak up just as close as we can, and then we will let ourselves be seen. We will discover ourselves. We, we, we will stand up and we'll let them see us coming. And if they say, if they say unto us, come up unto us, then we will take that as a sign that God's on our side and we're going to win the victory. If they tell us to stay, if they tell us don't come any farther, then we'll know that it won't work. But if they invite us into the camp, then we will know we got them right where we want them. <laughs> and the armor bearer listens to this harebrained plan that is surely going to get them killed. And he says, brilliant. That is a wonderful, wonderful idea. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they sneak up close to the sentry. And then they sneeze or they cough or they throw a rock and they, they discover, they, they expose themselves to the guard. The Philistines assume that that there's more Israelites that are coming to attack. And, and since they are so confident, they say, oh, come on, come on. Y'all just climb up that side of that cliff. Y'all just come up, up on those rocks. And, and y'all just come on up because they're confident. Get them up here. There's no way to escape. We, we, we got them. But it didn't work out quite that way. Jonathan is armor bearer. The Bible says on their hands and their knees, climb up the face of that cliff. Get up to that top where these Philistines are, and before you know it, they've killed 20 Philistines and taken a half acre of land. And then God, I've never had anybody say that while I was preaching. <laughs> Sometimes it's an amen, but I'll take a get her done. God joined in the fight and he sent an earthquake and the earthquake struck fear in the heart of the Philistines and now you got an entire army and they're running away from two and in their confusion they start turning on each other and two courageous men have set an army to fight and where was Saul? He was tarried under the pomegranate tree. That's not really a good look. You don't want to be caught napping under a pomegranate tree when your son is out there killing Philistines. And he's there because there is no fight in him. He doesn't have the courage that is in the heart of Jonathan. You have cowardice and you have courage. And here's what courage is. Courage is when you do the right thing at the potential expense of your own comfort. Cowardice is when you choose 
self-preservation at the expense of doing right. No man has ever done anything great without courage. It takes courage to stand for what you believe in. It takes courage to take a stand. It takes courage to have convictions. It takes courage to rebuke the person that's trying to tempt you. It takes courage to stand alone. And cowardice makes men conform to the norm, to keep their mouths shut, to go along, to get along. Cowardice makes Saul a passive observer while somebody else goes out and fights his battles. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he will, shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You have a strong heart? Or do you have a fearful heart? Maybe you need courage to be a witness for Christ. Maybe you need courage to stand against that family member. Maybe you need courage to not be silent in the face of evil. Fear. It'll keep you under the pomegranate tree when there are Philistines to kill. There's a contrast between cowardice and courage. And then when you read the story, there's a contrast between fanaticism and faith. When you... um, When you come back to the beginning of the narrative, there's one verse that stands out, and it seems to be out of place, and it's verse 3. And this verse tells us that the priest Ahiah and the ephod were with Saul. In that day, there were several ways to hear from God. One way was to ask the priest to seek out the will of God. But that means that the priest himself needs to be in touch with God himself. And for some reason, the text goes out of its way to give you the family tree of this priest, Ahiah, and his family tree is traced back to Eli. Now, I already know from 1 Samuel 4 that Eli has been rejected. I already know that because of his indulgence of his son, that Samuel has told Eli that his house would be cut off. In the previous chapter, he told Saul that his house was cut off. Several chapters before that, he has told Eli that his house would be cut off. So here's what I have. I have a felled priest and I have a felled king. I have two lame ducks sitting in the cave at Migron. And both men have been disgraced in their respective line of work. And neither man could get a hold of God if they wanted to. So whatever Saul is getting ready to do religiously in this chapter, he's going to do so without the voice of God. So look at verse number 18. Let's look at it quickly. Saul said unto Ahiah, bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased and Saul said unto the priest, withdraw thine hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow and there was a great, very great discomfiture. 
Saul and his company of men are not so far off that they can hear the commotion going on among the Philistines. And Saul decides that he needs to spring into action. So he says, oh, hi, hey, go get the Ark of the Covenant. Go get the Ark so we might find out what God wants us to do. But he's a little bit unsure of himself, whether, whether we get the Ark or whether we don't get the Ark. And so Ahaz goes to get the Ark, but then the battle is increasing. It's intensifying. And, and, and you know what? We, we, we might not have time for the Ark. We don't really have time to pray right now. We got to do something. We don't have time to wait. The battle is getting too intense and we don't have time for religious stuff right now. We got, we got to take some action. We never do inquire of God. Look at verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed over unto Beth Avon. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening that I may be avenged on mine enemies. So none of the people tasted any food and all day of the land came to a wood and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped and but no man put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. The Philistines are on the run and Saul's gonna take advantage of the opportunity and his men are gonna chase after the enemy and Right in the middle of the battle, Saul decides to impose a fast on the army. That's spiritual. But nobody gets to eat. Nobody gets to eat until I, well, I am avenged of mine enemies. And it appears that Saul does this because it wastes time to fix supper and we don't have time to prepare food. There's no time to waste. But it very clearly is a foolish order because who starves an army? Who tells a marching army that you cannot eat? Huh? In verse 31, they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people did eat them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord in that they eat with the blood. And he said, You have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox and every man his sheep and slay them here and eat and sin not against the Lord and eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night and slew them there and Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. The, the army dutifully, dutifully obeys the orders of Saul, but by the end of the day they are starving and they're faint. So now they come upon the cattle and the oxen that have been left behind by the Philistines and they are so hungry that they kill the cattle and they eat, but they don't take time to properly prepare it. The Jews were forbidden to eat blood. They couldn't eat rare steak. They couldn't have blood in it. But they're so hungry, they're so famished that they, they just skip that. They, they, they just eat it blood and all. And somebody tells Saul, and instead of knowing that your foolish orders have become a stumbling block to the people, he takes the high road. He decides we're going to make an atonement for the sin. And the Bible says that he built an altar, and it makes a point to tell you it is the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And the writer doesn't seem to be very impressed with his altar. And the reason I say that is because verse 36 Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until the morning light and let us not leave a man in them. And 
And he said, Do whatsoever seemeth good unto thee, and said the priest, Let us draw near, near hither unto God. And Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down out to the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him, Not that day. So emboldened by his initial victory, he decides, I want to keep pushing. Why don't we stop and pray about the decision that we've already made to do it? He finally asks counsel of God, and God says nothing to him. It seems as if the altar that he just built was built in sincerity. God would have answered it. God's not impressed with the altar either. So Saul said, draw ye near hither all the chief of the people and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. God's not talking to us. Somebody has sinned. There's sin in the camp. And throughout the process of casting lots, Jonathan is identified as the culprit. And he says, Jonathan, what have you done? You're my son. But if you have sinned, if you are the guilty party, I have such holy and righteous zeal and indignation that I will even have you put to death to prove how righteous that I am. The only thing that Jonathan was guilty of was he ate a little bit of honey in the wood and he didn't even know about his father's orders when he did. And if he had known, he probably would not have complied. But Saul is a fanatic. He is super pious. He is super spiritual. Jonathan has embarrassed him. Nobody thought it was a good idea to fast while we were on a battle. And Jonathan has proven how silly an idea that it was. And Saul has to save face. And that's all that his religion is to him. It is a farce. So Jonathan must die for eating honey. Now, now I'm rushing through it, all right? I, I really am. But, but you put it all together and you can easily see that all of these religious things that Saul is doing, it is not faith, it is fanaticism. When something is wrong, he automatically assumes it is somebody else. He already suspects Jonathan because he says, even if it be Jonathan, my son. And did you catch how that he announces the punishment before the crime has even been confessed? What if what somebody did was not a big deal? What if it wasn't something that deserved it? I don't know, something like eating honey. What if it was something like that? But a fanatic is an extremist. He will chop your head off for the slightest offense if it bolsters his pious image. He would rather sacrifice his son than ever admit his own foolishness. Saul is a zealot, but he's out of touch with God. All of his blustering and all of his chest pounding and all of his righteous indignation, it is nothing but a fanatical show. There is no faith. There is no waiting or trusting on God. And I've rushed through the scene, but when you read and you go back through it, you are not impressed with a spiritual man. He does religious things, but he is not spiritual. Not one time does God speak to him in this chapter. He is like a lost man that's all out on an island all by himself. Everything's impulsive and impetuous. Go, go get the ark. Let's, let's, let's have a fast. Some, somebody's got to die. Let's jump, so. that, that's how he is. What about Jonathan? I love verse 6. I, I love verse 6. Here's what Jonathan says. He said to the young men that bear his armor, Come, let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, 
For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. What an attitude. Who wouldn't want a man like that on your side? And what about that armor bearer? Oh, I like that armor bearer. He says, do all that is within thine heart. Behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Jonathan doesn't blow a trumpet. He doesn't make an announcement. There is no fanfare. He doesn't wave any banners. He simply sneaks out of camp and he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He just gets one man and says, let's just go see if God's in this thing. Let's see if God will give us a victory. Let's see if we can do something for God. Let's see if we can win a victory for the Lord. It says in verse number six, it may be that the Lord will work for us. In verse number 10, he says, the Lord hath delivered them into our hands. Verse 12, the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And that is quiet faith that says, let's just try something for God. We don't have to announce it. We don't need any attention. I don't need my name in the bulletin. If anybody does a bulletin anymore, we don't, but, but let's, just, let's just go and see what God can do. And God doesn't need a big crowd. He can say by the mighty or by the few and when nobody else wants to do anything let's just go see if God will be on our side oh the difference between fanaticism and faith and faith isn't always loud and, and, and showy and, and flashy that, that's fanaticism the, the loudest the loudest is not always the most spiritual but faith doesn't have to draw attention to itself doesn't have to be splashy and, and splashy. Faith, faith doesn't have to have a big announcement. And, and faith doesn't have to be, make a big entrance. Faith is in the plotter, the steady gate of the faithful Christian. Faith dares to imagine just what if. What if God would bless this thing? Why don't we just step out and see? Why don't we, just, why don't we just, just step out and just see if God would do something? Faith is the missionary who goes to the foreign field to win souls. But faith is the blue-collar worker that goes to work on Monday to help support the missionary that goes to the foreign field. There's a contrast between cowardice and courage. And there's a contrast between fanaticism and faith. I'm going home, but before I do, there's a third contrast. There's a contrast between selfishness and selflessness. You can see it at every turn. I'll point it out to you in just one verse, verse 24. Just verse 24. The men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening that I may be avenged on mine enemies. You're a selfish man if you think this is about you. You're a selfish man if you would sacrifice your children for your own career. You're a selfish man if you would hurt others to keep yourself from looking bad. Selfishness pits me against you and says that in order for me to win, you have to lose. Selfishness never admits failure. It never acknowledges a fault. It never steps aside for someone else. But there's something remarkable about Jonathan. Come back to chapter 13. Let me show you something here. 
Chapter 13 and verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee, for now will the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Do you know who would have been the next king after Saul? Jonathan. Jonathan's the oldest son. Jonathan's the one who's going to continue the dynasty. But when Samuel said that the Lord is not going to continue your house forever, that the dynasty is going to end for you, do you know who that impacts more than Saul? It impacts Jonathan. It means, Jonathan, you will never be the king. David replaces Saul, but more so, he replaces Jonathan. Yet Jonathan loved David, became his closest friend, his most trusted counselor. And there's something else. Come back to chapter 14. I'm done. Look at verse 44. Saul answered, God, do so more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. And the people said unto Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, that he died not. Saul has lost his head and he would have killed his son, but the people step in and say, we are not allowing this. And sometimes you can learn as much by what a man doesn't say than by what he does say. And Jonathan doesn't protest. He doesn't make any charges against his father. He doesn't try to seize power. He stands there silently having done absolutely nothing wrong. And he seems willing to let the course of actions play out, even if it means he must die. Jonathan has rescued Israel with his daring, and now Israel rescues Jonathan, and Saul has rescued no one. No greater contrast could be between two men. There's a postscript in this chapter we don't have time to read you got to go home and you have to read verse 46 down through verse number 52. And it gives you the further military exploits of King Saul. It is a summary of the rest of his reign. The next chapters are going to focus in on his obsession with with hunting David. That's going to become the, the focus of his life. But what these verses tell us is that the Philistines... Um, Uh, His war with the Philistines never ended for Saul. In fact, the last battle he would ever fight would be with the Philistines, and he would die in that battle. In spite of some small victories, he never vanquished his foe. The same nemesis that bothers him now will be bothering him on his last day on earth. And the snapshot of the rest of his reign is there to tell us that Saul may have won some military victories, but he never won any spiritual victories. 
that you can be successful historically in the eyes of the world, but not in your heart and your relationship with God. I don't believe that the story of Saul, I don't believe that the story of Saul is here for us to learn to hate him. It's here as a warning for you and I not to repeat the sins of Saul. And I would like to think that my life is more in tune with Jonathan than it is with Saul. The contrast tonight. Is your life marked by cowardice or is it marked by courage? Is your life marked by fanaticism and religious fervor with no touch of God or is it just quiet faith in the Lord? Can you truthfully say selfish or selfless, even willing to die?